Now, you have done your homework, presumably, regarding mindfulness of the body and regarding mindfulness of feelings, <coughs> sensation and emotion. So, presumably, you now know all about it and are started on the way of doing it habitually. The more we remember to do it, the more it becomes a habit. But now there are two more foundations of mindfulness. Altogether, there are four. We've talked about the first two. Now there are two more. And actually, we have already talked about those two in a manner of speaking. The third one is the awareness of the thinking process. And the fourth one, the awareness of the content of the thought. Now, if we go to the fourth one for a moment, we can see that that concerns the labeling. In order to know the content, we have to have a label. If we go to the supermarket and we see a lot of nice-looking cans, colorful, pretty, cheap, and we load them into our little shopping uh, cart and then take them home without having read the label, it might turn out to be all cat food and we haven't got a cat. So we, without reading the label, we haven't got a clue what's inside those nice-looking, colorful, cheap tins. So it pays to read the label. Well, it's the same here. It pays to read the label on what we're thinking. And we will find, and you have already found in your meditation, that a lot of that is actually cat food. It's useless. <laughs> it has no cat around, and you actually do want to meditate, and uh, a lot of it could have the label useless which is as fine a label as any other. However, it's not quite good enough for actual mindfulness. Now, in the meditation, it's fine. You can say useless and thereby become aware of the fact that a lot of the thinking is useless and also become aware of the fact that our thinking isn't as wonderful as it's made out to be and learn the labeling from it and the substitution. Once you've labeled, you substitute with the breath and you've learned those three processes. Useless thinking, not all our thinking so wonderful, and labeling and substituting. However, in daily living, it's a little different. Of course, sometimes the word useless might also be helpful, but it isn't quite helpful enough in order to make the fourth foundation of mindfulness become the kind of asset that it should be and could be. There are several things that are mentioned by the Buddha that one should know when one labels. But there are too many of them to teach you all in one or two afternoons. So I'm going to teach you one of them. 
which I considered to be a very important one. The labeling in one particular way which can be extremely helpful in one's daily life. Now that same labeling we can use also in the meditation but it isn't quite as practical then because in the meditation you need to have a quick label useless, nonsense, future, later, past, hoping, planning, remembering. It has to be quick. Whereas in daily living, when the thoughts arise which are detrimental to one's own happiness and well-being, one can take the time to sort them out, to actually see what they are. And one of those items which the Buddha explains as labeling is called the five hindrances. Pali Panchanirvanas. The five hindrances, the five obstacles which beset all of us. Every one of us has them. Now, not everyone has the same one in the same quantity. Some of it are beset more with number one or number two or three or four or five but we've got all of them and by recognizing them we are recognizing our enemies and it is a very good idea to know what are our interior enemies because once we have that quite clear in our mind and have seen the havoc that they can actually do to us destruction and difficulties we will be less inclined to let them in and more inclined to let our friends in now yesterday i talked about two of our friends love and compassion they are our most sincere most helpful friends incomparable to any other friendship. If we make friends with those two emotions and try to have them live with us continuously, happiness and peace will undoubtedly be the result. But we have also these enemies, five of them. And if we don't know them, if we don't know their names, nor do we know the difficulties that they provide for us, we are very prone to allow them and make then some allowances for the fact that they have again entered. Justifications. I'll give you the names first, the five names, and uh, we'll look at them uh, in detail. The first one is the desire for sensual gratification. These are our desires and I'll explain it in a moment. Second one is ill will. First one could be called greed, second one hate, but in this particular enumeration they're called like that. Desire for sensual gratification, second one ill will. Third one, sloth and torpor. I've already mentioned that one, that we counteract that 
when we actually sit down to meditate. Because when we sit down to meditate, we at least have the intention to be awake and aware. The fourth one is called restlessness and worry. What is that? Interesting noises, huh? Fourth one's name is restlessness and worry, and the fifth one's name is skeptical doubt. Now, it's very helpful to know their names, at least. If you have friends and enemies in human form and don't even know who they are, you're going to let them all in or maybe you're going to let the enemies in and keep the friends out because you don't know their names, you don't know what they look like, you don't know what they do. It's important to have an understanding of what there is within us. Now obviously these five are disturbances in our lives, but they're also disturbances in the meditation. They disturb our meditation just as much as they disturb our lives. And because we have far more time to notice this when we meditate and can become more aware because of the fact that nothing interferes with us at that time, it will be very helpful if you use the first meditation session to have an acknowledgement which one of the five hindrances has arisen. Now the first one is quite easy to notice. The first one, this desire for sensual gratification arises in meditation when we are not comfortable in the sitting position and would like to sit differently. We'd like to have comfort. Very easy to see. Number one enemy has arisen. If we allow number one enemy to actually take hold of us, number two enemy will immediately follow in its wake, namely ill will, the disliking of the discomfort. Very easy to see. And then if you see that in meditation, at least you have an inkling what it means to have hindrances, what it means to have to purify what it means to be a human being with all its difficulties and where they come from. They don't come from outside. They don't come from anywhere except from our own inner reaction. So the first thing is if you don't sit comfortably, the desire for sensual gratification has arisen and if you dislike it, the uh, discomfort, the second one, the ill will has arisen. These two, one could say, are the most, the heaviest. They are our heaviest and most um, pronounced enemies, these two. They are under a different heading, hate and greed, and they 
include every wanting, every desire, and every dislike. Small, medium, large, a desire for sensual gratification does not mean that one has to have a Rolls Royce. Nothing of the sort. It just came into my mind because I saw some in a show window today. <laughs> it has nothing to do with that at all. The desire for sensual gratification basically means I want my comforts and I don't want anybody to intrude upon them. And I want to have the sensual gratification through my senses by having those things which create pleasant feelings. I only want pleasant feelings. It's an absurdity, unfortunately. Nobody gets away with it. Nobody can have only pleasant feelings. If you think back upon your life for just half a second or less, you will undoubtedly remember that you've had unpleasant feelings in this life. How you've dealt with them is a matter of one's own character. How we eventually deal with them is a matter of our own practice. When we are practiced enough, eventually, we will see an unpleasant feeling as an unpleasant feeling, and that's it. Finished. That's all it is. It has no other connotations. And we will see a pleasant feeling as a pleasant feeling, and that's all there is to it. But until then, until one has practiced that far, we have our reactions. And now we can use our mindfulness of thought content to recognize, first of all, those first two enemies. First one, the desire for sensual gratification has been described by the Buddha as being in debt. Like having a mortgage on one's house and having to go to the bank every month and paying it off with interest. Now, if one is lucky, one could possibly pay that off before one dies. With the desire for sensual gratification, one isn't that lucky, unless one has practiced. That desire will remain, and it will remain with interest. If one has a gratification of some sort, it will no longer be the pleasure that it once was because one has already had it many times and it needs to be enlarged and made stronger, which is the interest we pay on that. But not only that, we are in debt to our senses all the time because whatever they provide for us, it disappears. It doesn't stay. And the other thing that we do, and the whole world does that, I mean, we're not singled out, everybody does it. We spend our time and our energy and our money on trying to have that which looks nice, sounds nice, tastes nice, smells nice, and is nice to touch, and if anything else is left over, nice to think about. And then when we have that, whatever it may be that we've singled out, 
some nice music, some nice food. We unfortunately experience that it disappears again because we cannot stay with us. It's impossible. Every sensual gratification has to stop, otherwise it becomes miserable. Now imagine that you're very hot and you go to somebody's house and say, I'd like to have a cold shower. The person says, of course, please, here's the bathroom. You go in, have a cold shower. And after about five minutes, you call out and say, oh, this is really pleasant, it's lovely. I feel much better. And that host of yours says, be my guest, we've got plenty of water, just stay in there another hour or two. Terrible. Misery. Absolute misery. Five minutes, six minutes, seven, eight, and that's it. What about food? The best food? Well, I think that 20 minutes is about the maximum that one can handle it. Although there's a lot of argument that it could be half an hour. All right, let's say half an hour, and then what? And then it doesn't actually feel so good anymore because the taste is gone, the tummy is full, one is a bit of bit tired, and all one has is a memory of a very nice meal, but one doesn't want the same thing again next day. One wants something different. So the sense contact of the taste was fine while it lasted, but it has to be resurrected, obviously. And the same is with the touch contact of the cold when it's very hot, or vice versa with the warm when it's very cold. The same goes for looking at something. Our eyes don't even allow us to keep looking for hours on end. They blink all the time, and after a while they get tired. So our whole sense apparatus is geared towards impermanence. It's no way that it can be any otherwise. Our senses are actually provided for us for survival. But the way we're using them is as a pleasure, an entertainment, and an enjoyment theater where we look for that which will entertain or which will give pleasure and we never ever remember that our senses are for survival. We can taste, or supposedly we can taste when it's poisonous and we can see when there's an enemy, supposedly, and we can hear when there's danger. That's what our senses are for. If we can't see or hear, it would be very difficult to cross um, any of the big streets here and get run over. It's for survival. But we use them for pleasure, enjoyment, and entertainment. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with pleasure. Shall I repeat that? <laughs> What's wrong is our direction towards it and our continual search for it 
not necessarily having to go to the movies all the time, but just the comforts and the nice things and disliking that which interferes with that. So the search, the energy expenditure, the time and money expenditure to get that which provides pleasure, and that's what's most wrong is to try to keep it that way because it's impossible. That's looking for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And unfortunately, the whole of humanity is doing that. The pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Everybody has a different idea what that pot of gold should contain, but it's at the end of a rainbow. We're not looking for that which is really giving us and can give us the deepest inner contentment and satisfaction that kind of inner joy which is independent of outer conditions, but we're looking for the outer condition. And the outer condition will not comply with our requests. Sometimes it does. Everything goes beautifully. Everybody is nice, everybody supports us, everybody speaks nicely, everybody is polite, the weather is okay, war hasn't started yet. Not quite. So everything's okay. But other days, everything goes wrong. The weather is dreadful, the people we meet are grumpy, and things just don't go well. And if we continue to be dependent upon that, we will remain the slaves of outer conditions, which is the opposite of the liberation that the Buddha taught. So sensual desire, while it is an innate human condition, needs to be recognized for what it is, an enemy of inner joy, because it depends upon outer joy, something through the senses. And the more we do that, the more we go through the senses, the less inner peace there is, because we'll always be looking, we'll always be searching, <coughs> The satisfaction which we get is so short-lived that we have to continue. One of the results of that is the fourth hindrance, restlessness and worry, because the restlessness which arises is due to the fact that we can't get that total satisfaction. And so one of the things that we can do in daily living is recognizing it. Now, why is it so important to recognize that? The essence of the Buddha's teaching is contained in the Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth proclaims that there is unsatisfactoriness in existence. And the second Noble Truth says that there's only one cause for that, one single cause, and that's desire. Third Noble Truth is the Noble Truth of Nibbana, the ending of all unsatisfactoriness, and the fourth, the Noble Eightfold Path, how to get there. Now, obviously, we won't have time for the Noble Eightfold Path. That alone takes a week or something like that. But we certainly have time for the first and second Noble Truth. And I'd like you, all of you, if you're interested enough, to try that first and second Noble Truth out for yourself. It's very simple. If there's any 
dissatisfaction in your mind, any, the smallest, the most subtle dissatisfaction. Try to figure out what it is that you want that you haven't got, or what you have that you don't want. And drop it for just one second. Drop whatever it is you want, or drop the wanting of to get rid of whatever it is that you've got. Just for one second. And the moment it's done, that one second has total peacefulness. Everything's fine. No problems. Naturally, without having practiced over and over again, the same wish will arise again. That's only natural. But for that one moment, one has proven the Buddha's words for oneself. And one has seen what it means to be without any kind of unsatisfactory state within, letting go of desire, of wanting. And that's why it's so important in daily life to be able to label. Now everybody is beset with unsatisfactory states of mind. Some people are quite able to suppress them and get on with their work. And by doing so, they sometimes forget them. Or, after some time, they come out in such a strong way that there's a sort of an explosion. That's also a possibility. And other people are just so used to being dissatisfied that they think that's the way one needs to be or that everybody's like that. And others don't pay any attention to their states of feeling, to their states of thinking. They just keep merrily on doing whatever it is they need to do. But if we are people who want to meditate seriously, honestly, we need to be people who are wide awake and aware and alert. And that means outside of meditation just as much as in meditation, because we have to connect the two. The two have to be totally connected. We'll never notice our sensual desire in meditation if we don't notice it outside of meditation. So in daily living, become aware of the content of the thought, which can be a lot of different things naturally, but very often is this first one a desire to get something or a desire to get rid of something. And the minute one sees that and has been, has been pointed out that this is exactly what it is, namely the second noble truth, one can then drop that desire and see what happens. Because all these desires that we have, no matter what they are, are based on an illusion. They're based on the illusion that we can actually find satisfaction within this existence if we just did it right. If we just were clever enough to find the right person, the right house, the right job, the right spiritual path, the right teacher, the right meditation, whatever it is that we're trying to find, if we just did it right, we would find total satisfaction. And that is a misconception. The only way we find satisfaction, total satisfaction, is we, when we give up 
wanting something because then we're satisfied contentment is only possible when there's no wanting and that's the first and second noble truth which is the kernel the um, essence which is the Buddha's proclamation at his enlightenment the four noble truths is what he proclaimed under the Bodhi tree when he became enlightened the only way they'll do us any good is if we try to act them out ourselves I don't mean that we have to act out being enlightened what I mean is we act out the first and second noble truths because the first one we don't have to act out that we are we're dissatisfied there's something which isn't quite totally 100% wonderful within so we don't have to do anything about that that's already there but what we do have to do about it is to recognize it and that is the mindfulness of thought content that recognition and the second thing we can do about it is to try and drop whatever it is that's arising now if we do this in meditation it's very helpful and I have already mentioned it but I will now put it in context if there is an unpleasant feeling in the sitting position and we notice it I've told you one can see how it arises from touch contact feeling then naming then reaction seeing quite clearly that the reaction is a desire desire for more comfort dropping the desire and just seeing the feeling as unpleasant mind you it doesn't may not last you may not be able to do that for the rest of the meditation session that's quite all right you can move there's no a crime in moving but to see it like that makes it possible to see oneself in the real context what it means to be a human being we want it nice whatever we think nice is and we can't have it it's just not that way if we're lucky we get 50 50 that's wonderful that's already very good karma to have it 50% pleasant and 50% unpleasant if we should get it 60 40 we're really having a very good go anything more than that would be almost unbelievable and this is what we've all experienced we know that and yet we do have this mistaken view that there must be something I can do to make it at least 80 20 yes there's something we can do drop the wanting and the first thing we have to do is recognize the desire and that is partially done in the meditation process when we have for instance the unpleasant feeling and partially done in daily living when things arise which make us unhappy whatever it is that makes us unhappy is always due to wanting something other than what it is we are not satisfied with the way it is whatever that may be whether it be the job or the family or whatever it be we are not satisfied with the way it is so we are not happy now that recognition 
is already a great step into insight. In the West, people are always concerned with, is that Vipassana? Vipassana means insight. That's what it means. It's not a method. It's becoming clear in the mind, knowing what's going on with oneself. That's Vipassana. Actually, when you translate this um, literally, it means the light arising. So it's not a method. And that's what this is, seeing clearly. And it's a very important step. It changes one's attitude. The second one, the ill will, is also in meditation, as I said already, when we dislike the unpleasant feeling, ill will arises. Now, we don't usually call that ill will or hate. We consider this a totally natural reaction that we don't like it when something hurts. Well, yes, of course, it's a natural reaction. There's nothing to be said against it. It is a natural reaction. But with all these natural reactions which we've had from birth to now, have you been happy? That's the whole criteria. If our natural reactions would make us happy, peaceful, harmonious, and contented, there's nothing to be said about getting rid of them, to keep them. But if they don't, if we haven't been, totally contented, peaceful, and harmonious, with inner joy, then there's something wrong with natural reactions. And what's wrong with them is that we can transcend them. We can transform our inner life so that we transcend the natural reactions, which are instinctive and impulsive, and have reactions which are based on insight on understanding. So when we see that our mind says, I don't like sitting like that, very unhealthy. My blood circulation is going to stop, or something like that. We can see that this is a dislike. And maybe we can step back, one step back, and say, it's an unpleasant feeling. That's all it is. And then, drop the desire to have a pleasant feeling. And even if it only lasts a moment or two, we have seen our first two enemies clearly. Now, ill will, I mentioned this already, has been likened by the Buddha to a bilious disease, the bile coming up, and its greatest antidote is, of course, love and compassion. And the meditation practice which we did last night, loving-kindness meditation, is one of its antidotes. But that's not enough. What is necessary is to use one's mindfulness so clearly that we can see in everyday living, every time, irritation, rejection, resistance arises. And as it arises, to substitute it with acceptance, with compassion, with loving, whatever we have at hand and can use. Now, we're not always going to be able 
to love something or someone who irritates us. But we can probably remember most times that that person who's irritating us is also having unsatisfactory conditions within. Compassion. Irritation can be counteracted with acceptance. Things are the way they are. Our resistance to them makes them suffering. When we no longer resist, we don't suffer. If you can think a moment of a door that won't open, it's stuck. And instead of accepting the fact that the door is stuck and trying to go around another way, you push. And you push harder and harder and harder. It's bound to hurt your hand eventually. Instead of pushing, 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 trying to get it my way, let it be. Things are the way they are. There are many other ways of doing it. And this is what we can see when we become aware in mindfulness of our states of mind which are resisting, rejecting, disliking, hating, which are negative in any manner or form towards anything. It doesn't matter whether it's a postman who comes too late or the boss who's grumpy or the husband or the wife who don't do what one wants for them to do. It doesn't matter what it is. The dislike can in the, be in the smallest thing. All of them make life the way we know it, up and down, from one mood to the next, always changing, never quite peaceful and at ease. So when we notice that, in our mental makeup, with our mindfulness of the content of the thought, and realize this is a resistance, it's a rejection, this is negative. Even that alone already let, makes it dissolve. As you have noticed in the meditation, when you give the disturbing thought a label, it dissolves. Naturally, another one may arise immediately but the first one has dissolved. The objective observer is not the thinker anymore. So then instead of having this disliking thought or negative thought, the substitution process, putting in the positive. The Buddha compared ill will to a little pond of water in which the waves are going so high that one can, cannot see one's likeness. If one really gets angry, one can't see oneself anymore. And the uh, sensual desire he compared with a pond of water into which many different colors are thrown, and then one can't see one's likeness. This is a trouble in our society, in an affluent society, even more so maybe than in a um, not-so-rich society, that our possibilities for gratifying sensual desire are so enormous and usually so easily available that we don't even notice anymore that it is sensual desire. Now between the two, they both have advantage and disadvantage. Sensual desire has a disadvantage 
that it's much harder to recognize because we justify. Not only do we justify, but in an, a kind of society in which we live, sensual desire and its gratification is considered to be success, in parenthesis. That's successful. Big house, two cars, uh, holiday at the beach, and so on. These things are success. And our whole economy is geared, usually, uh, towards making sensual desire arise so that we buy more stuff. So it's very difficult to distinguish between need and greed. We've got to learn it. There's no two ways about it. We can learn it. Need is very small. Greed is very big. It has the advantage, it's a disadvantage. It has the advantage that the person who has sensual desire more than hate, is more on that side, is a person who's much easier to live with, jolly, and doesn't get angry so easily, therefore much easier to live with, and also has this promise dangling before his or her nose that all these desires are going to be gratified, so is always hopeful and optimistic. Now, the one with the hate, with the ill will, is very unpleasant to live with, either with oneself or with another person, hard to live with, but it's so unpleasant for the person who has it that such a person really wants to practice. They want to get rid of it. They recognize the fact that it's awful. And it's not socially acceptable. Greed is socially acceptable. Hate isn't. We don't think it's a very good idea when people scream at each other or uh, try to um, get the better of another person out of hate. We don't think that's socially acceptable. But the other one is. So while hate is much more unpleasant, it does push one into practice much more. The other one is acceptable and makes it easier to live with, but harder to practice. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid that if I were to give up my desire to get a job, for which is one thing that's constantly still on my screen. But I would lose the motivation to do something about, about getting a job. Um, can you well, is it a need or is it greed? Uh, well, it's a need. <laughs> well, it's a that need answers it. Sorry? It's a need which has made me unhappy because it's not been um, gratified. There. So if it's a need, it's something that you stick with. You know, need and greed is something you have to distinguish. And if it makes you unhappy, you have to see that because you're not getting what you want, you're getting unhappy. So pursue the um, search for a job without expecting a result. Everything that we want to do and expect results has immediate disappointment with it. All expectations have disappointments on the other side of them. 
You do your best, but don't expect anything. And if it happens, that's fine. If it doesn't happen, it's just as fine. No difference. It's all one the same. That means you can do it with far less tension, with far less stress, with far less um, worry about it. Just do it. And just are doing that thing which is needed, necessary to do at that time. This is another very important point, actually, which does go together with the desires, the desire for results. And this is something that is very detrimental to one's inner peacefulness, and not only when looking for a job, in all manners and forms. It um, happens to people in, under all circumstances, the desire for the result. It's got to be the way I've got it figured out. Well, why should it be? There's no reason for it whatsoever. But that doesn't mean then what, that one doesn't do one's best. One still does one's best. I'll stick with those first two. I think that gives you enough to think about and practice. Um, I'll talk about the other three uh, later. But now getting back to the meditation practice, there's one other thing which is important to mention. This one, the labeling, the content of thought, is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. There's a third one, which is the thought process, called citta which means we know what kind of mind we have. Now, in meditation, to recognize whether you have determined mind or distracted mind, whether you have worried mind, restless mind, bored mind, whether you have intention in the mind. Now, obviously, a bored mind, a distracted mind, is not going to meditate. A mind which is determined, which is interested, which has intention, will be able to meditate. So look at the mind and see what kind of mind there is. <coughs> this, again, is part of the mindfulness practice that we do in everyday life. But in everyday life, the fourth one, the content of mind, is far more applicable. Whereas in meditation, the third one is the applicable one. In daily life, the third one becomes applicable when mindfulness has become strong enough to recognize angry mind without becoming angry. So this is a practice here in meditation, recognize the states of mind. And then, as you re realize, I have interested mind, determined mind, I'm really going to do this now, intentional mind, then get into the meditation practice. Is that quite clear now for this first session of meditation that we're going to do? First, see what kind of mind there is change it to the one that's useful. Any question on that? Hmm? <laughs> <You> look puzzled. <laughs>
anything. Is it clear? How to see states of mind. It is very similar to the labeling process, but it, the difference is not to wait till you already got disturbed by your thinking, but to see the kind of mind that you have to start with, and then go on from there. And then, of course, keep on labeling when you get distracted again. See, again, the content, but also maybe the state of mind. Either one will do. And start the meditation with giving yourself some loving kindness. Before we start, we'll stand up and stretch our legs. I think it's quite uh, important to know a little more about our other three enemies which I have named already but we haven't discussed them. And again, just as a reminder, in our daily life when we use the fourth foundation of mindfulness it means that we actually know the content of our mind. Obviously, we don't just have negative thoughts in the mind. We can have the opposite. So, looking at the greed or the, um, the uh, desire for sensual gratification, we can have exactly the opposite in the mind which is generosity, giving instead of desiring. And that too is important to know about oneself so that we actually become acquainted with all those aspects of ourselves which are beneficial and those which are not. And as we see the results, we will be more and more inclined to cultivate that which is obviously so beneficial to ourselves. We often think of generosity as being beneficial to the person who is at the receiving end, but that can be a total misconception. Whether it is beneficial to that person or not is a mute question. Maybe, maybe not. It's definitely beneficial to the giver because it counteracts our negative tendency of desiring. It counteracts the tendency of being ego-centered. It counteracts this tendency of me and mine, and it relates to and connects with others. So the benefit is definitely to the one who is generous. And this is an ingrained aspect of the thinking in Buddhist countries. Whatever else is happening there, I'm not going to go into that, but this one aspect of generosity being beneficial to the giver is fully understood in Buddhist countries and therefore if someone gives something to a monk or a nun, it's not expected or socially um, useful to say thank you. 
we are not supposed to say thank you the giver says thank you now obviously having been brought up in the west I've never managed that I'm still saying thank you because that's the way I was brought up but the one who's giving is the one who is thanking the receiver for accepting now this is such a totally opposite idea of what we have in the West that it takes a little bit of swallowing doesn't it but you can probably logically understand that giving is an action which benefits one's own inner being by being something that counteracts all those tendencies we have of having everything for ourselves <coughs> generosity is a very important aspect a very important practice and the Buddha said many things about it one of them is that the purity of the receiver purifies the gift in other words that one has to give with a little bit of wisdom that one doesn't just give but uses a bit of wisdom and discrimination whether one is giving in the right kind of environment in the right kind of spot because the pur purity of the gift becomes enhanced if the receiver is also pure generosity stands at the apex of the virtues which ten virtues which are to be developed on a spiritual path and being the first one doesn't mean that the other nine are not important it just means that it gives us an entry into cultivating purification it's the opposite of sensual desire and our immediate benefit is a feeling of happiness now you've all bought birthday presents in the past sometimes because you had to but other times because you wanted to and then you wrapped it up in a nice piece of paper with a little ribbon around it and thinking at that time about the other person how he or she might enjoy what you had picked out with care because you thought that would be pleasant and acceptable and at that time there's no ego-centeredness because you're thinking of the other person and there's already a bit of joy in the heart about this nice situation of being able to give something to someone else now if we then rely on the fact whether that other person really enjoys it and is grateful we're losing half of the benefit we're looking for the result if that other person is grateful that's his or her benefit but that we are giving stands alone there has to be no there needs need not be any gratitude for that we've been giving and we know from our past experiences how nice it is to give now these are small presents small gifts but generosity can be much greater than that the Buddha divided it into three kinds the generosity of a beggar generosity of a friend 
and generosity of a king. The beggar's generosity is a kind of generosity when we give away our old clothes to the Smith family because we don't want them anyway. That's just giving away what we don't want. It's certainly better than throwing it in the uh, garbage can, but it isn't a great deal of generosity involved. A friend's generosity is someone who thinks about another person's need or another person's um, situation and likes to help or give something which will make the other person happy. The wanting to make happy. And the king's generosity is a person who gives more than what they keep. Now that doesn't have to be material things. It can be time, it can be attention, care, concern, love, skills. One of the most generous persons in the world today is probably Mother Teresa in Calcutta. She gives herself to what she's doing. She's certainly not giving material things, but she's giving her love and care and her time and her energy and her whole life. Now that's an ideal and we don't necessarily have the ability to accomplish that much, but we can see from it that there are such people who have a king's, or in this case a queen's, generosity. Generosity is always of benefit to the giver. Whether the receiver benefits doesn't matter, because if we want to be generous, we will do something that we think will benefit the receiver. That's all that matters. If that person is then grateful, that is their ability to be have gratitude. The giving itself makes us already happy without having the result of the other person's gratitude. It gives us great benefit because we are letting go of sensual desires, of desires for ourselves at that time. And if you watch your mental states with the mindfulness which we have discussed and which needs practicing, you will notice that whenever the thought process is not concerned with self, there is peace and happiness. Try it out. See whether it's true. You don't need to believe a word I'm saying but you do need to try it. It's something else to try. We try so many things in this life. So generosity, of course, is the opposite of the sensual desire, and we can become aware of that in our own mind states. Generosity can also be listening to others, being there for others, giving one's own time, even though oneself can't see any benefit from giving that time. The benefit lies in the giving. And then, of course, the opposite of the ill will is love and compassion. So we can be aware of those mental states also. To be aware of our hindrances doesn't mean that we don't become aware of our good states. On the contrary, it's very important to see the difference so that it becomes quite clear that only with those mental states which are giving and loving do we find inner happiness. And 
that's what everybody wants, quite rightfully so, inner happiness. It's only the unfortunate thing is that most people don't know how to get it. And we do make so many mistakes. When we have made enough mistakes, then this appears to be the right way of doing it. The third hindrance is called sloth and torpor, and I've already mentioned it, that we counteract it by sitting down to meditate. Because we have to be wide awake in order to do that, in order to meditate properly. The Buddha compared sloth and torpor to being a slave. Uh, sorry, to being in prison. Being in prison by our lazy and tired mind that doesn't wish to actually understand or see or investigate or introspect. Now, that happens to everyone and it's very important that we become aware of that, particularly in meditation. Because if the mind becomes lazy and drowsy, we are not meditating, we're sitting. We're sitting on a pillow. And we can sit there and sit there and sit there and nothing happens. Chickens sit three weeks. <laughs> All they get is little chickens. Just sitting doesn't do any good at all. We've got to be aware and awake. So this drowsiness in the mind, which is not uncommon when one starts practicing meditation, and even later, it's not uncommon at all, is something that we need to, with the mindfulness of our mental states, we need to be aware of. The reason it's not uncommon in meditation is the fact that we close our eyes, we don't want to think, so the mind only knows that when it's asked to go to sleep. The moment of going to sleep is a moment of non-thinking. As long as we're thinking, we can't go to sleep. So we stop thinking, we fall asleep. So the mind knows this, says, oh, must be sleepy time. Eyes are closed, no thinking, time to sleep. And while it doesn't really sleep and snore, it may be so um, drowsy that there's like a twilight like a twilight zone. It has to be carefully checked, carefully known, so that one can pull oneself out of it. If that happens in meditation, open the eyes, look at the light, move the body to get more blood circulation going, give yourself a pep talk. I'm not sitting here in order to sleep, I'm sitting here in order to meditate, or whatever you can tell yourself, anything that is um, useful. You can... Uh, talk nicely to yourself if that's helpful or if it's not helpful to talk nicely then talk to yourself as if you're scolding yourself whatever you find useful so that the mind gets a bit of a grip on the situation very important to recognize that state of drowsiness now that same state happens in daily life when there's nothing to do and the television is boring and it isn't time to go to bed yet and the mind just sort of shuts off. It's not asleep, it's not doing anything, it's not even aware. Now we can actually see that, but we can see it even easier when we procrastinate. Every time we procrastinate, it's a lazy mind. Because we could be doing it right then and there. 
But instead of doing it right then and there, we say, well, it's not that important, do it tomorrow. And instead, we like to have some gratification of sensual desire. There's no blame involved at all, just recognition. Because we all have it. It's the human condition. The Buddha's explanation of the human condition is so detailed and analytical that we can relate to it in all its aspects. But he also shows us how to get out of it. He compared sloth and torpor to a water pond which was muddy. You can't see your likeness, you can't see your mirror image in a muddy water pond. It is like a muddy mind, sort of like a um, foggy, muddy, muddy affair where you don't know what's going on. Now, sometimes the only way we can get out of that in daily living is if we can arouse interest in something. This is the counteraction, arousing interest. To find something which is really interesting, not gratification of sensual desire, and not something we dislike, but which we are making ourselves do, but something that's really interesting, so that the mind can then actually be alert again. Now, in meditation, that's very possible, but it takes concentration. It takes practice. The first step, and I have mentioned it already as a counter um, action and antidote for ill will, the first step of meditation without using <clears throat> the breath, which is the key, arouses interest because it contains a very, very pleasant sensation. That's when interest starts. Now the word PT in Pali is translated as delightful and also a delight and also as interest. Now, until that happens, in order to keep one's interest in meditation going, one has to be clever enough to understand that this is the only way the mind can be trained, can be looked after. There is no other way we can look after our mind. So that the interest in the meditation remains and doesn't flag. Most people have that problem that they're very interested for a week and then nothing so many other things to do watch the mind states very interesting to see now this is something that will arouse interest watching one's own mind states and mind content because it's almost like a, like a novel that's being written it doesn't have a beginning, end, and middle. It's constantly in the middle and the beginning and the end, but it's very, very interesting. It contains all aspects of human life. So using mindfulness to explain one's, to oneself one's own mind states, or if one has a good friend to talk to, that can be arousing interest. It's the most effective way of counteracting the slothful mind, the lazy mind, the procrastinating mind. And one of the things that kind of counteracts it is to recognize it. 
the fourth hindrance is restlessness and worry now worry is about the future and restlessness is very often about the past but restlessness is a result of not being totally satisfied so we're looking for something else restlessness arises in all manner and forms by going around the world in a sailboat or by moving from the city to the country and back to the city or by changing one's diet, one's habits, one's uh, partner or by just uh, trying to get some interest in reading different books restlessness is the mind and it's easy to see, very easy to um, notice is a mind that after having sat down for a while one wants to stand up after having stood up for a while one wants to lie down and so on watch it at home it's very interesting after having one is tired one lies down and has a rest after a while having had the rest there's no way one can stay there one's got to get up and do something after a while one has done something finished has to do something else this restlessness now restlessness is unfortunately one of our hindrances that only disappears for what's called the non-returner which is one step before totally and being totally enlightened so there's a way to go but the recognition of it is extremely helpful because usually what we do is we blame the thing we are doing or having or the person we are with for our restlessness we are not satisfied so it must be something out there that's not satisfying us so I've got to go somewhere else or do something else or learn something else or know something else or whatever it may be it's got nothing to do with any of that it's an innate inherent condition of a human being due to the fact that we're not totally satisfied not totally happy that we do not have complete inner joy and peace and when we see that in ourselves we're first of all not going to put the blame outside of ourselves we're also not going to put the blame inside of ourselves all we're going to do is see that we have to practice in order to find that inner condition of complete satisfaction and when we do see it like that it's useful that is the one that the Buddha said is like being a slave being pushed around being pushed here and there the restlessness and the worry the worry about the future and the restlessness about not having satisfaction obviously all of them are due to the fact that we think of ourselves as a separate entity completely apart from everything else an entity which needs to be satisfied has needs which have to be taken care of should be secure and safe all completely illusion because there's no way of being completely safe and secure it's just not possible we're all going to die and there is an end to this some live longer than others usually uh, our usual lifespan I think is uh, considered to be 70 some make it some don't some go a little further and I think it is extremely important to sit down and contemplate and we have talked about contemplation what am I doing with my 70 years 
What am I actually doing with these 70 years? What's the most important thing for me to do? What am I here for? And see what one can come up with. This um, idea that we need to be safe and secure and that we are owed something, that we are separate, that we are an entity, all these ideas bring those hindrances with it. Now, obviously, they will not disappear without that illusion disappearing. But as we purify and use the antidotes, this ego-centered and separation idea is getting a little less strong and therefore has a little less hold on, on us and a little easier to see and understand. When we understand that the restlessness is within us and the worry, of course, also, and has nothing to do with outer conditions, it doesn't matter how good the economy is, people do worry about it. And when it's bad, of course, they worry just as much and no more. It has no difference. There's no difference because we are not safe and secure. We can't be. There's no way we can be. We can live a certain length of time and none of us knows how long. We have no guarantee. So the actual counteraction, the most important one that one can do is to stop living in the future or in the past, as the case may be, and start living in the moment. That sounds so simple as if it was totally unnecessary to say that. But all of you who've now meditated must have become aware of the fact that the future, the planning <clears throat> and the hoping, and the past, the remembering, even if it was only what you remember from 10 minutes ago, always interfere with the present. The present is this one moment, this one breath, this one word, this one sensation. If we are actually living in this one moment, we couldn't possibly worry. We couldn't possibly be restless because we are engaged. We're busy. We're living in this one moment. And this is the only one we can actually experience. The rest is all conjecture. The rest is all trying to make something safe which is totally unsafe. But if we do live in this moment and we have our moments when we do, for instance, when there's a wonderful sunset, and we're really engaged in looking at that. The mind becomes really interested. We're in that moment. And we forget about all the worries and about all the restlessness. That's that one moment. But we can't wait for beautiful sunsets, can we? We mightn't even be there to see it. It mightn't appear. So every moment is a moment which we can live. Now this is something we learn in the meditation. As I said before, we can only watch this one breath. We cannot watch the next one, and we can't watch the previous one. We've got to watch this one. So we learn in the meditation to be in this moment. The better we learn it in meditation, the easier it becomes in daily living. This is our most important antidote for restlessness and worry. But with all that, you need to use mindfulness 
of the um, content of the of the mind, the thought content, in order to recognize which one's happening, so that you can actually for yourself realize that this one, the be in the moment, is the one that brings peace and happiness, and the other one brings restlessness and worry. And the last one, the fifth one, is skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt is compared by the Buddha to going in the desert without any provisions, without a road map, without any kind of help, going around in circles, and in the end being overrun by bandits. It's a mind that doesn't know. The mind that keeps saying, well, maybe it's this or maybe it's that. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Maybe this person is right, maybe that person is right. That's a person, that's a mind, that likes to have confirmation and security rather than listening to one's inner wisdom. We all have it. We all have inner wisdom, a conscience, and also a consciousness which can very well show us what's right and what's wrong. But if we want to have confirmation from outside, obviously we're going to get conflicting ideas and conflicting opinions. So the kind of mind that doesn't know which way to turn is a mind also without any self-confidence. The counteraction to skeptical doubt is getting self-confidence, which happens through meditation when we become concentrated. The first moment of concentration, when the mind stops thinking for a little while and actually is concentrated, is a moment when self-confidence arises. The self-confidence of being able to do it. The confidence that the Buddha's words are actually true that this is the way it does happen. And that kind of confidence then helps one to follow the path without having other people's opinions about it. Other people's opinions are very nice to listen to, but they should not be the reason for our practice. So a skeptical doubt is like going around in circles in the desert and being overrun by bandits, and the water um, little water hole is compared to one which is filled with uh, water plants so that one can't see one's likeness. All of the five hindrances have one common antidote. Noble friends and noble conversation which in the Buddhist words particularly the noble friend, is the most important aspect of a spiritual path. Ananda was the Buddha's companion and cousin, and he said to the Buddha one time, he was also um, contemporary, same age, he said to him one time, Sir, a good friend is half of the spiritual life. And the Buddha said, Do not say so, Ananda. A good friend is a whole of the spiritual life. A good friend in Pali is a Kalyanamitta, and <clears throat> it is very often considered to be the meditation teacher. 
The good friend who is a meditation teacher is a person who has gone along this path and is willing to help others to come along. Now, if one doesn't have one, a friend like that, well, maybe one can find one. But if one doesn't, then a good friend is one who is on the spiritual path and has gone a few steps ahead of oneself and can point out the dangers in getting off the road and can point out the direction over and over again. Without that, very difficult. No, impossible. No way. One has to be a spiritual genius like the Buddha or like Jesus in order to find one's way, oneself. Human beings are beset by too many difficulties. Just alone those five hindrances which I have talked about in very briefly are enough to get one off the spiritual path completely. I think everybody who has tried to meditate has already experienced, I'll do it tomorrow, next week when the teacher comes, or in two months when the course starts. Over and over again. One has to have someone that can help one on the way. The good friend spiritual friend is one who will help one to have noble conversation because conversation is food for the mind. Now nowadays people are more and more conscious of health food for the body, rightly so. Health food for the mind is much more important. And what we get fed by the media and by books is certainly not health food. And what we think up ourselves is also not health food. Health food for the mind is immeasurably more important than health food for the body. The mind is the master. <coughs> Naturally, we should not negate the body, nor should we um, not pay any attention to it, or not should we give it any food which is uh, detrimental to its well-being. Of course not. But if we only think of health food for the body, we are missing the point of life. Health food for the mind, noble conversations. What are noble conversations? Conversations that mean something, that help us to see the way on the spiritual path, that help us to understand ourselves better, help us to understand others better. Anything that will not just remain on the surface, particularly not something which is negative. Now the surface is when we're just talking for talking's sake, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask after other people's health or their well-being or um, connect to their interests. That shows only that we're interested in them. That's not superficial that's giving our attention to them. But noble conversations is something that we need to watch very carefully because all of us are inclined to do the opposite. When we use mindfulness, mindfulness of our content of thought, we will automatically find that content of speech 
is affected. We can only say what we think. It's impossible to say something that we haven't thought first. So first comes the thought, content of thought. Next thing is content of speech. And third thing is content of action. Those are our three doors, thought, speech, and action. That's all there is. There is nothing else. So these three are how we manifest. If we watch through mindfulness, the content of our thoughts, obviously, our conversations are going to be along the right way. And we should think of our conversations as the food for the mind. And we should watch that food just as we watch the food that we put on our plates, or even more so. It's only for our own well-being. The whole of the Buddha's teaching affects nothing else except ourselves. It has no other meaning or direction except the spiritual growth in one's own life. Now if we use the attention on ourselves, which mindfulness is, I'll repeat the four ways of doing that. Physical action, feeling, which is sensation or emotion, the kind of mind that is arising, a mind which is either distracted, disturbed, irritated, or a mind which is concentrated, or giving or loving, and then the content of that thought, whether it contains any of the five hindrances or their opposites, sensual desire or generosity, ill will or love and compassion, sloth and torpor or intention and determination, restlessness and worry or being in the moment, skeptical doubt or confidence. We can see any of those within when we practice like that. And as we practice, we will see that only the positive ones make us happy. And then we can start being our own best friend by watching out that our states of mind are those that make us happy. And when we become our own best friend, then we can also be a best friend to others. Finding noble friends is a very important aspect of the spiritual life. That's why people practice together in communities. That's why people get together weekly or so to meditate together. There's nothing more important because it is a support system also. Support system for one's own practice because most people today still do not have this direction, spiritual practice and meditation. So we do need that support system of other friends with us. All five hindrances are effectively counteracted the moment the mind becomes concentrated. It's an automatic purification system. Now I've already mentioned some of that. The sitting down and wanting to meditate counteracts the 13 months, loss and torpor. 
The becoming concentrated counteracts the fifth one, the skeptical doubt, in oneself and in the practice. One becomes sure and confident that it's possible that one can do it. The arising of the pleasant sensations, the delight, counteracts ill will automatically. And from then on, we're actually within the meditative path. The arising of joy, which is a companion to the delightful sensation, there has to be joy, it's just impossible not to be, counteracts the desire for sensual gratification. Because all we're looking for is joy and happiness, and since we already have it, we don't have to have any sensual gratification in the meditation, during the meditation. And the one-pointedness which is necessary to have it, to have the concentration, counteracts effectively the uh, restlessness, the um, the restlessness and the worry, because as we have the um, one-pointedness, nothing else can arise. So as our meditation practice proceeds and improves, these hindrances have an automatic purification system, which doesn't mean that we don't have to also work on them in our daily lives. We have to do both. We have to do the meditation plus the counteraction in daily life. Now for the meditation practice at this point, I would like you to again start with giving yourself loving kindness, having a feeling of contentment about being able to practice, contentment and gratitude that this is possible. Not everybody in this world has this opportunity. Gratitude is a state of mind which is an important aspect of spiritual practice. So try to arouse it for the fact that you have this opportunity of practicing or whatever you find that you can be grateful for. It's a very important mental state which helps one to concentrate and see this mental state arising, then see the mental state of determination. Without that, meditation doesn't happen. See the mental state of intention, first intention, maybe then determination. One comes before the other. And see the mental state of concentration or its opposite. And then try to let the mind fall into the breath. Don't try to pull the breath towards you or try to have them have a thought about the breath. There's no thinking about the breath. It's experiencing the breath. It's a big difference. So when you experience the breath, mind and breath become one. We're going to have another meditation session now. And at the end, 
we'll do a guided loving-kindness meditation. Before we do, are there any questions? What to do, how to do it, why?